series, we've been going from a book by Brady Boyd called Sons and Daughters, and we've been talking about um, just what does it mean to be a son and a daughter of God? You can watch any of the sermons online. I want to thank everybody who's part of small groups. I know our small group just had a powerful time, just even as we ended Wednesday, our time together, and uh, it's just been good to talk about how we're sons and daughters of God. Because that's how he describes us. I mean, that's how it's described from the very beginning, that he's our father. Jesus says over and over in the Gospels that he's our Abba Father. And he doesn't want us to get mistaken with our earthly fathers, and, and a lot of maybe our earthly fathers weren't that good. And if we, even if we did have an earthly father that was good, he was still sinful, and he, and he still probably hurt us in some ways or something. And so God says, I want you to know exactly what kind of father I am. And so he tells us in his word what kind of dad he is. And we have stories like the prodigal son is where we got most of our sermons from, this idea that we have a father who loves us and it doesn't matter what kind of son you are. It doesn't matter if you're the son that runs away and and says, I don't want anything to do with you. It doesn't matter if you're the son that stays and says, Dad, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. It doesn't matter because as different as those guys' lives were, they still shared the same philosophy and that was this, that I have to perform in order for my dad to love me. That I have to be good in order for my dad to love me and, and, and the father. And I just want you to get this tonight as we end. All the father ever wanted from his sons was a relationship. That's the only thing he wanted for the son that ran away from him. That's the only thing he wanted from the son that stayed home and slaved for him. That's all he ever wanted was a relationship with his sons for them to come into the party and celebrate with him. All he ever wanted to do for both of those kids was to give them grace. Grace is radical. Grace is life-altering because we know what kind of people we are and we don't want other people to know how wounded and flawed we really are because we know that we can never earn, ever, ever earn God's love and yet His grace is there and you are a son or a daughter of God and that changes everything. And so as we conclude our time together tonight, I want to look at the Old Testament because grace is not just something that happened when Jesus showed up. It's not something new. It's actually God's heart and God's story from the very beginning of Genesis. And I want to look at it tonight. I want to look at grace because God loves you and he never stops pursuing you. Even when you could care less about God, he still cares about you. And I want to tell you, a lot of times we think of the Christian life as, I've got I to gotta go after God. I've got to get to God. I've got I've to search out God. And it's this lifelong pursuit. And the problem is there's times where we, we kind of fall behind in our Bible reading or our prayer or spending time with God and, and we forget to seek Him. And we begin to feel bad. But here's the reality. You may forget to seek Him, but He never stops seeking you. He never stops loving you. Your spirituality, your holiness, it's not up to you. If you had to shoulder your faith by yourself, you are done. I'm done. There's a line in a hymn, Come Thou Fount, that says this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. How many of you know that if you were left on your own, you would just wander and wander and wander? 
You ever feel this way, like you're saying, God, I'm prone to wander. Just take me, hold me. Never let me go. Shackle me, God, to you, because if, I, if I'm not shackled to you, I'm just going to keep drifting farther and farther away. And I just want to tell you that we are indebted to God's grace because that's exactly what he does. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. I will hold on to you. You belong to me. You are my son and daughter no matter what. And I love that. I don't know about you, but I just love that. Because i got to be honest with you, the older I get and the more I live of life, I realize that life is hard and I don't have it figured out. And sometimes I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing and I, I just, I'm trying and I fail and I, I just want to tell you that you can't do it on your own. You are never meant to do it on your own. That's where grace comes in. And you say, Lord, shackle me with your grace. And, and don't just try to see how little of grace you can use. God, I only need a cup today. No, just say, God, I need an ocean of grace. I need it all the time. God, I need your love and your grace, this beautiful, powerful grace. What is this grace? And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. What is this grace? And we think of grace in a lot of different ways. I teach at the college, and so students have midterms, they have finals, they have papers, they have book reports, they have homework, they have all these things, and sometimes people get behind. And I'll get that email from somebody and they'll say, oh, uh, Pastor Daryl, can you, um, I just didn't have time, can, can you give me grace? A lot of times we think of grace that way. We think of grace as len leniency, and it's true, but it's so much more than that. Sometimes we think of, of grace as universal or unconditional acceptance, that God will love me no matter what, and that's true. But that grace is, for me, too passive. That's just, if, if we come to him, he'll accept us. So I believe that divine grace is this, that it's God's relentless pursuit of everyone, including his enemies. That God is pursuing everyone. It says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we didn't even love him back, when we were far away, when we rejected him, he still loves us and he pursues us and he pursues the unworthy and the unlovely and the unthankful. And he delights in rescuing sinners, even the ones that we think are really bad. And in spite of everything, God races after us even when we're not pursuing him. You have a God who loves you, that pursues you. And I'm going to give you four fundamental truths of grace. These are the things that I'd like you to write down and take home with you tonight. These are the truths of grace. Number one, God doesn't love you, or he doesn't continue to love you, based on what you do, but rather based on what Christ has done. God doesn't love you based on what you do, but rather based on what Christ has done. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He did that. That was once and all forever. So let me tell you, it doesn't matter if you're having a good week or you're having a bad week. It doesn't matter if you feel close to him or if you feel distant from him or you're just apathetic and don't care about him. God's love will not change because Christ's death on the cross will never be reversed. God loves you always and forever based on what Christ has done not on what you have done. 
And that's the first truth of grace. The second truth is this. God doesn't punish believers. Let me say, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that one. No, I want to tell you, God doesn't punish believers. In fact, it's, it's impossible for him to be angry and punish believers. You say, how can that be? I mean, the, God, the Bible talks so much about God's wrath and his judgment. And, and so we read those verses and we get scared and we live in fear. But Romans 8.1 says, There is there, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took all of our sin. He took all sin on the cross. He didn't go to the cross and say, well, I will take 90% of this and you handle the last 10%. You handle the last little bit. I'll do the majority. You do the last little bit. He said, no, I did it all. It is all done. It is finished. God's wrath and his judgment was poured out on the cross, making it impossible for God to punish believers. I want to tell you, God loves you. He's not looking down at you to get you. His grace is too big. Number three, grace means that God doesn't just put up with us, but that he delights in us. That God doesn't just put up with us, he delights in us. You know that God delights in you? That God enjoys you even in your darkest moments? Have you ever thought about that? That God rejoices in you? You're saying, really? That God loves me even in my darkest moments? I, I want to tell you, God doesn't delight in our sin, but He delights in us. Because He loves us unconditionally. And that He desires a relationship with you more than your sin can separate Him from you. I want to tell you, He loves you that much that He desires you. And it says in the last verse of Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word follow in the Hebrew is actually the same word that they use for animals hunting down their prey. It's that, it's that lion going after the zebra. It's just it's stalking, it's chasing, and it won't stop until it takes it down and kills it. It's that animal hunting its prey. That's the word there saying that surely goodness and mercy shall hunt you down. God loves you. He's after you. God will love you until the very end. He delights in you. The fourth thing is that grace isn't, or obedience isn't grace's enemy, but grace's byproduct. Obedience isn't grace's enemy, or isn't grace's enemy, but grace's byproduct. And, and a lot of times we think there's this grace and enemies, they're, they're, they don't work together. I mean, how do I obey in grace and and all of these things, we obey God because he loves us. Because he has grace upon us. Because of his grace, we can respond to God. And so our obedience is response to his grace. A lot of times we think, I'll obey him so he'll love me. I'll obey him so he gives me grace. It doesn't work that way. The Old Testament is full of grace and it begins in Genesis, and a lot of times we look at these heroes of faith, the men and women of the Old Testament, and we say, wow, aren't they great? Wouldn't it be great to be like them? I want to be honest with you. If you decide to pattern your life after a lot of the Old Testament characters we read about, you will end up in prison. <laughs> these are not great men and women. The Old Testament is all about God stepping in and using very unusable people. 
for His glory and for His purpose. There's only one hero in the Old Testament, and that hero is Yahweh, because He steps in. He says, I'm going to use people. He steps in with Abraham and begins the covenant in Genesis chapter 12. This is where I want you to look right now so that we can kind of get the heart of God in this. It says, in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse the, him who curses you. And in you, all families on the earth will be blessed. Abraham was not a great guy. He was a pagan idol worshiper that God chose to shed his grace on. And he makes this marriage proposal to Abraham. Abraham, I want to do this for you. And then a few chapters later comes the actual wedding ceremony, if you will. The ceremony of this covenant in, in Genesis chapter 15. Let me read it for you. It says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, Along with a, a dove and a young pigeon, Abram bought all these, cut them into two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So he cuts these animals in two, and he places one on one side of the path, one on the other, and the blood flows down the middle. That was an old way of doing covenants. And then it says, in the verses that follow, it says that he fell asleep. He went into a deep sleep. And then in verse 17, when the sun had said, and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Let me explain what's happening here because in, in our culture, we may not know what's happening. The way they would establish a covenant is they would cut animals in half, they would put them on each side, and the blood would run down the middle. And then what you would do is you would walk with the person that you're having a business partnership, family partnership, whatever covenant relationship you were going into, and you would walk down the middle of that blood. And what you were saying was that may we be like these dead animals if we don't fulfill our part of the covenant. It was so much more than signing your name on the dotted line. This was a powerful symbol of the covenant that they were entering into. And, and God says, I'm having a covenant with you, Abraham. And so go and arrange these pieces. And so he does. But what's different about this covenant is that God walked alone through the animals. See, in a normal covenant, both parties would walk through the animals. But in this time, God walked alone. A covenant sealed in blood. It was going to be a one-way covenant. It was God doing all the work. It was not an if-and-then kind of thing. It wasn't a transactional relationship. God makes a unilateral promise to fulfill his covenant. No matter what Abraham decided to do, he was going to keep his covenant. And he was going to be committed to that covenant to the very end. That it was up to God's faithfulness and not our fickleness. It was going to be God alone. And then God tells Abraham that this is an everlasting covenant in Genesis 17. It says in 17.7, it says, I will establish my covenant with you as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. This will be an everlasting covenant. We fast forward to the New Testament, and the New Testament begins with the 
Gospel of Matthew. And in the very first verses of chapter 1, Matthew gives us the genealogy from Abraham, who had this covenant with God, all the way to Jesus. And we usually skip over that to get to the Christmas story. We usually don't read those first few verses of Matthew because it's so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But when you look at that list, something stands out. It starts with Abraham and it ends with Jesus. But when you look at the men in that list, it is one of the most amazing lists of the most notorious liars and murderers and adulterers and thieves. And when you look at the women, and there's a few women in the genealogy, and usually women don't make it into the genealogy. There's three women mentioned. And he doesn't mention the good women like Sarah and Rebecca and, 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 uh, and Rachel. He, he doesn't mention them. You know who he mentions? He begins with Tamar. I don't want to get into the story of Tamar. If you have small children, don't let them read the story of Tamar. But Tamar basically seduces her father-in-law to have a baby and just a lot of weird things before and after that. And that kid is in the line of Jesus. And then, you know, if that wasn't bad enough, let's add a few more. Let's add Rahab, who's not even from the line of Abraham, who's a prostitute from Jericho. A prostitute made it into the line of Jesus. And then you have Bathsheba, the final woman mentioned one who had the affair with David. You'll also notice a lot of names that we know nothing about. I call these the nobodies of Scripture. These are just names that appear. We don't know who they are. But what I love about God is God said, I'm going to keep my covenant. And I'm going to keep my covenant no matter what. I'm going to keep my covenant with a people that have a lot of issues and a lot of problems and, and, and there's a whole lot of nobodies in there too. But I love them. And I can use them. And they can be a part of my glory. And you look at Israel's history and you go through it again and again. And there's such sordid passages of Scripture such as, such as Exodus 25 through 31. And he is going through such meticulous detail about the, the tabernacle in those chapters of Exodus. I mean, just exactly what needs to be here because a holy God is going to come to unholy people and dwell with them. And so this meticulous God is just saying, this is what I need. This is what I want. This is how you're going to set it up. And in the middle of that, they're out worshiping a golden calf. That's like getting married, and then on your honeymoon night, you leave to go visit a prostitute. That's what it's like. And yet God says, you're still my people, because you know how Exodus ends? It, it ends beautifully with the children of Israel building the tabernacle and fellowshipping with God, with a God who doesn't give up on anybody. In Ezekiel chapter 16 Probably one of the most sordid chapters of the Old Testament, which I see everybody writing down right now to go home and read it later. But it talks about how bad Israel is in very explicit language, and yet how good God's love is. God uses a prophet named Hosea 
to tell the story in a prophetic picture of his enduring love for his people. It says in Hosea 3, 1 and 2, And the Lord said to me, Go and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. When we turn away from God, he doesn't wait for us to come back to him. He goes after us. He pursues us so that he can be reunited with us. God loves taking our messes. God loves taking people who are nobodies, who are broken, and he loves changing the world with those kind of people. God has radical grace and an everlasting covenant with his people. Inside your bulletin, there's a a card that says Grace Affirmations. If you could take that out. If it fell out of your um, uh, bulletin or you want to get one for a friend, they're available in the lobby. We've got a a whole stack of them out there. But what we have to realize is this this is how God thinks about me. Because we think about ourselves being so broken, so wounded, maybe a nobody. But God says, you know what? And you look at my new name. It says, thank you, Father God, that I am what? Beloved, your delight, beautiful, unashamed, chosen, known, precious, planned, safe, gifted, loved, provided for, clean, treasured, presentable, pure, protected, established, welcomed, your work of art and heir of Jesus. I love that. Free from condemnation, complete, holy. I'm your child, God. I'm forgiven. I'm your friend. I'm adopted. I'm a precious bride. I love that. See, that's who God says you are with the scriptures right there for you to study and to highlight in your Bible. See, God loves you no matter who you are, where you're at, and he wants a relationship with you. That's what it's all about. He will pursue you in relationship. And so we respond to God. I don't know, to be quite honest with you, that we will ever understand how much God loves us. Let me give you an example. Luke, our oldest son, is 17 years old. He's a senior in high school. He's talking about college. And I know, even though to me it feels like he was born yesterday, is that my time with him is very short. And that I love him, and no matter what he does in life, I want a relationship with my son. I love him very much. Because when he was born, it was touch and go. He he was sick when he was born. And and, uh, so there were just a lot of complications. I don't need to go in the story, but just to let you know, it was touch and go until he was finally made whole, complete. I mean, God's just done such a miracle in his life all these years. And and he's perfectly healthy and bright and brilliant and strong. And I, I love him. And, and uh, I remember the first time we brought him to church was actually quite a while after he was born because it took a while to get him out of the hospital. But I remember when he came to church and, um, and it was a great son who really needed was celebrating, you know, 17 years ago. Just so excited to have him in church and to show this is my son. You know when you hold your child for the first time or a grandchild, niece or nephew, you look at that baby and you're like, I didn't know I could love someone so much. And, and I remember having him, and I, was, I remember, I, I will remember it till the day I die, standing in the kitchen right over here, holding um, Luke in my arms, a precious baby boy who I loved more than anything in this world. And I'll never forget my mom was in the kitchen that day with me, 
And she said this, Daryl, do you realize that I love you that much? Do you realize that I love you as much as you love Luke? Listen, I have never doubted my parents' love. I'm not going to pretend that we had the perfect family or anything like that, but I want to tell you I had great parents, and I have never once doubted their love. I know that they loved me, but it wasn't until I held my own son that I realized how much they loved me. And see, that's why I don't know that we'll truly ever understand how much God loves us, how crazy He is about us, how He would do anything to have a relationship with us. We beat ourselves up so badly, and the enemy comes in to try to put these voices in our heart that we are no good, that we are not worthy, that we've messed up, that we're far away. And God says, all I want is a relationship with you. And from the very beginning of Genesis on through Revelation, it's all about God who never stops seeking you, never stops loving you, never stops pursuing you, who is totally committed to your relationship with Him. Let me read Ephesians chapter 1 from the Message Bible once again. This has kind of been our theme the past few weeks. And I want you to hear God's heart and see God's story for your life. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind and settled on us as a focus of his love. To me, made whole and holy by his love. Listen to this. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved Son. God has always loved you. His grace is bigger than any boundary you may walk out of. And I want to tell you tonight, he calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. And you will never really understand how much he loves you. Will you bow your head and your heart with me tonight? And I want to pray with you. Because I want us to know this love. It may be the final message in a series. But I want to tell you, it's got to be the beginning of a brand new life with Him. And I want to pray for you, and, and I want to just give you this invitation. And, and maybe you're, you're here right now, and, and, and you want that relationship with the God who's pursuing you. Maybe you're um, watching online right now, and you want to have that relationship with God, or you're listening on the radio, or watching on TV. I mean, I don't know where you're at, but God is speaking to you right now. I want you to surrender your life to Jesus. I want you to come close to Him. And so I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to ask you to repeat these words after me, a prayer of commitment, and then I want to pray for you, and then we're going to worship the Lord together as sons and daughters. Would you repeat these words after me and pray them from, believe them from your heart? Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins. I want to turn from my sins. I now invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let me pray for you quick before we worship. God, we love you. But we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, for some that prayed that prayer right now, it is the start of a brand new life. They are fresh, they are clean, they are close to you. God, I thank you for coming and loving us so much that you died on a cross for our sins. And God, that you have given us abundant life. And God, I pray that tonight that we would realize just how much you love us. That it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter our past. Lord, all that matters is our future is in you. Lord, it doesn't matter if we're a nobody and no one knows our name and we're all alone in this world. God, you still love us and you still pursue us. And God, we are the kind of people that you choose for your glory, for your kingdom, for your purpose. So Lord, as we worship you tonight, we draw near to you. And God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Thank you, God, for loving us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we worship the Lord tonight and give the Lord your whole heart of love?